Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and today we're going to be talking about the state of media, media freedom, social media in Pakistan. And, and before we jump into this conversation, I just want to frame this conversation in terms of the moment of time we're in um, right now. Um, it's Thursday morning Eastern time. Uh, I woke up and uh, realized that we've had a history-making uh, development in Pakistan in the sense that for the first time in Pakistan's history, the DGISI has given a press conference, which is unheard of. Um, and it's unheard of and unprecedented given the context of, of things that have happened over the last few days, uh, starting with the heinous murder of Arshad Sharif in Kenya. Um, a lot of speculation in terms of what happened to him obviously raises questions about media freedom, why was he pushed out of the country, the context in which he was pushed out of the country and what he was talking about, which relates to media freedom as well. Um, but where we've gone in the hour since his death um, is basically in part as expected in my view, but in part not expected is the full politicization of his death. And, and we don't know where things go. So we're not going to touch in this conversation a lot about what has happened or what the facts are, or what the speculation is about what happened to him. Uh, those developments are still happening and, and things are in flux. So we'll, we'll touch on that topic as more comes out. But today I, I have the honor of hosting Ramsha Jangir. She's an award-winning journalist and an Erasmus Mundus scholar. Um, she's reported extensively on the intersection of technology and human rights in Pakistan. Um, has written a lot about disinformation, internet regulation, digital politics, and she currently works at the Global Network Initiative as a senior policy and communications associate. You can follow her on Twitter at Ramsha Jahangir. Um, that's R-A-M-S-H-A-J-A-H-A-N-G-I-R. Um, and she she's done awesome reporting on this topic, particularly on technology, disinformation, and social media. And so today we're going to sort of touch on the macro backdrop of Arshad Sharif's murder, his exile, or his voluntary exile, depending on who you believe, um, and his role at ARY, and then also the social media machine that sort of, you know, um, amplified his messaging, ARY's messaging, or other outlets messaging, uh, depending on who's in favor and who's not, and what the agenda needs to be. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, Ramsha, thank you so much for taking out the time, and welcome to Pakistanomy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to be finally here. It's one of my favorite podcasts in Pakistan. So I'm excited to discuss and also one of my favorite topics, social media. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for that compliment. And maybe let's start with you giving us an overview or giving the audience an overview of the state of media freedom in Pakistan, particularly on social media, right? We a lot of people remain confused. Sometimes even I get confused on in terms of overt and covert ways of sort of, you know, uh, do dominating debate or influencing debate or curbing expression on the Internet or even on electronic media. So on the overt side, obviously, right, people think about PEMRA and its notices or they think about uh, the electronic crimes at PECA or PICA, as they call it, 2016. Um, etc. But then there's a lot of covert stuff that happens at, at the same time as well, FIA notices and, and threats uh, through unknown numbers or block numbers. Just situate the audience in terms of what that state of play looks like so that then when we go deeper into these things, at least folks have a baseline understanding of what, what are the issues here. Yeah, 
that's we've started on on a very heavy note. I feel it's it's very complex to simplify this censorship dynamic in Pakistan, especially currently, as you mentioned, the current press conference, Arshad Sharif's death, the conversation surrounding that. It's it's very very complex. So more focusing on what's happening online. So I'll go a bit bit to the backstory. So obviously, when TI came into power, we've talked, and particularly I've covered extensively on, on their digital media machinery and their online narrative. Why is it so important to talk about this? Is because politics largely moved online in 2018. In fact, before that, in 2013, when PTI pioneered digital politics and moved the voter base, targeted the young voter base, and moved the conversation largely online as well as on and when they came into power, it was basically a success story in narrative operations that I call it, because they were so, so on point in not just leading their own political narrative, but also the state narrative. And as we are familiar, they had this, they were on same page politics back then, which is very interesting in today's context, but um, they were on the same page politics back then. So they were very, very synchronized and they had built sort of an online coalition uh, with the state narrative, with state institutions and, and very good at pushing that internationally as well. So they've charted global trends, not just national trends. So it was a success story in their operations, as I call it. But then what happened is with populist politics, there's this concept of otherization of critics. So whoever doesn't agree with the state narrative, doesn't know the line, is called anti-state or a traitor um, or someone who is against the democracy of Pakistan. And that's the problem and that's where it became problematic. So as people move largely online, well, politics move largely online, so did this otherization of critics particularly journalists who were critical of the government, PTI government that back then, or state narrative, critical of state institutions, they were being labeled as anti-state, they were getting a lot of abuse, smear campaigns became normalized, um, attacks be became normalized, female journalists particularly, we, we've talked, uh, I've also been part of a statement calling this out, this kind of behavior. It became very toxic and highly polarized. And now what's happened is people who kind of engineered this are on the facing end of it. Um, and obviously behind the scenes who engineered it are also on the facing uh, end of it. And now it's come to a point there's little room for pluralism. And, and censorship doesn't, it's become, at least before we knew what the red lines are. Today we don't even know what the red lines are. It's become so complex and this desire to control conversation, desire to silence voices has become so desperate as we have seen with Rashid Sharif's murder as well. Um, it's become a desperate situation, but the success story that I was talking about has spiraled out of control. Their, their ability to push narratives, their ability to build online coalitions, popularize narratives has kind of, it, it's basically backfired. And now what's happening is that everyone is has a voice, of course. It's highly polarized, like I said. There is a lot of intolerance in the online space as well as in our drawing rooms on e-conversations. And, and yeah, there's little room for tolerance. So it's a mess, basically. It's so, a good word. Uh, thanks for that overview. And, and, and as you were describing sort of the, the 
initial synergy and now the split, right? Um, two things came to my mind and I would love your reactions on this. To, in my mind, uh, the beginning of this project or the beginning of the emergence of this synergy, at least as a major inflection point, was that press conference General Asif Afur did when he was DGISPR with the network map of all the journalists that behind, right? Show. right? Yeah. Um, and that really exposed what they were up to, which was basically mapping out these voices that were going against the state narrative, as you rightfully described, right? And at that time, it was the beginning. But to me, in my mind, still, if somebody were to ever write a book, or if I were to write a long essay, or you were to probably write a, a, a long essay, that would be a key moment, right? That that things were out in front of us. Like we all saw what what this project was all about. The second thing that comes to my mind is sort of, you know, looking at Pakistan's history over the war on terror, for example, and what's happened. I grew up in the war on terror. Um, and as I read the history books, I realized that a lot of the elements that Pakistan's brave soldiers were fighting um, and dying uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, confronting on the borders or in cities used to be actually assets. It just ended up being that the state at that point in time, framing these people as assets had given them certain capabilities or allowed them to have certain capabilities, which the state machinery did not. And when that relationship ruptured, all hell broke loose and it took a decade or so before the state itself and its military built the capability to fight that group, right? And now, at least in my mind, I'm not saying that this is a apples to apples comparison, but it's similar in the sense that you had the state allied with a particular party um, or the establishment, not the state. Um, and when this relationship ruptured, all of a sudden you found that the ISPR actually had to stop Turn, had to start turning off comments on its YouTube videos because of the comments, right? Because it didn't have that capability, it was relying on somebody else. Um, how do you then see sort of in, in the current context when we have another hybrid regime, so to speak, even more hybrid than the last one, relying on the establishment to sort of keep prop it up and its narratives, et cetera? Um, how do you see this situation evolving in terms of the digitization of politics, social media, the fact that nobody can compete with the PTI still on social media, and it is really in a full-on confrontation, as we've seen from today's press conference, with the security establishment in a way that perhaps um, no major party has been in since the 70s, which is Bhutto. Right. I mean, MQM people may point out and say, yes, that was the case. But MQM was a urban party in Sindh. It wasn't a national party. Yeah. So where do you where do things go from here? It's, to be honest, hard to predict exactly where things go from here, because like you pointed out, it's very unprecedented what's happening. Also, the criticism of state institutions on this massive level, at least on the, in the online space, is also very unprecedented because for journalists, and they can relate anything. There have been multiple regulations to, and multiple efforts, including from the PTI government to regulate social media and crack down on speech against uh, state institutions or critical of the army specifically. But it was kind of this red line that you tweet something and immediately they report your content to Twitter for removal. You would get some notices from Twitter. Your account would be suspended or you would face an FIR or you would face some charges for hate speech or even cyber terrorism in our cyber crime law. But today and for the past few months, we've seen that the trends against which are critical of the army are literally they're constant. 
every other day there is a new trend against the army or uh, state institutions or individuals. It's become part of the norm now. And that's very, very unprecedented and also goes to show where the state of affairs is in Pakistan. It's completely spiraled out of control. Um, obviously, they still, even in the press conference today, hinted at the intention and desire to control the social media space because obviously they said that disinformation is a big issue at this point and then criticism they said is a, a right a civil right of every uh person but it, it should not be it should be fair and um, i'm sorry to interrupt here but um you know the the changes you pointed to right was the ordinance to the pika which yes. Islamabad High Court uh, quashed. Um, thankfully, Imran Khan should yeah. thank uh, Justice Athar Minallah for doing that. But two days ago, and maybe you can add some more detail to this, I saw a few clips from television channels that the current PDM government was amending some other rules uh, for bringing back the same punishment, which is five or seven years in jail for criticizing the armed forces, right? It's the same. Do you see the same pattern going on in terms of the PDM or... Uh, because Absolutely. a lot of my PDM friends are like, no, 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 we're different. And I'm like, no, you're not, because the same stuff packaged a bit differently. Yeah, it's the people running the show are the same. Um, the faces have changed. And, and it was the PMLN government previously that brought the cybercrime law in the first place in 2016. So it, it's obviously, even if in the face, they're not the online side of things may appear to be a bit quieter, but the intention is still to silence and there is no room for criticism in Pakistan. And that's exactly what we saw with Russia Sharif's murder in this context, that even if if it's people from people on the PTI side of things, they're still facing the same consequences. So the larger problem, and, and it's also a very important movement for press freedom in Pakistan, that I feel for the first time this sort of this at least verbal unity, if not in practice, but verbal sense of unity where everyone is now calling for investigations and probes into past murder of journalists. And uh, Salim Safi, for instance, today at the press conference did ask this question, what about Hamid Mead? What about, uh, um, yeah, other journalists, Asatur, for instance, other Asar journalists. Alam was shot, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so what about them? Um, so I think it's it's a very critical moment for press freedom as well, that we're even having all sides are finally having this conversation um, and calling for investigation and fair trial for journalists. So let, let me ask you this question. It's something that's been in my mind um, since, for example, the foreign minister was here in Washington, Bilal Bhutto Zardari, or even General Bajwa was here. There was a new story published about him being asked about media freedoms. And he was like, media is free in Pakistan, which I'm like, you know, it, it reminded me of Imran Khan's statement yeah. again in Washington at the U.S. Institute of Peace that, you know, Pakistani media is freer than the British media. It's like a joke, like all of these leaders come up with these terms, which is flat, which are flat out lies. But one thing, for example, even in the current debate that gets missed out, and I heard this even from the public remarks the foreign minister gave was, oh, this was a hybrid regime, uh, things, uh, there was backsliding in terms of democratic norms, free expression, etc. Um, but then when I look at the data um, and go a bit deeper, um, I see that the province that the People's Party, the left-leaning liberal People's Party that cares about human rights and free expression, at least when they talk internationally in their British English and aristocratic language, um, they say uh, that we care about these things, but 
when you look at Sindh, Sindh is three times more dangerous for journalists than any other province in Pakistan. And the People's Party has been ruling there for the last 15 years. And if you talk about hybridity, well, okay, it can be there for a long period of time, but you've been part of this for 15 years. So what's going on in your province is my question. And so the question I had for you was, at that sub-national level, um, where we see these things happen in the real world, where journalists get shot, even in today's debate, right? we're talking about Ashish Sharif, Apsar Alam, Hamid Mir, Salim Shahzad back in the day, um, even Daniel Pearl or what happened to Carlotta Gall in, in Quetta that made her leave the New York Times journalist. Um, but we don't talk about these journalists on the periphery speaking truth to power in rural Sindh or rural Balochistan. Um, why is that not part? What's your perspective on why that isn't part of the conversation, both online, but even within journalist communities who sort of are united even in this moment? I think it's about serving larger interests. So with Arshad Sharif, it's, it's become a very, um, and, and rightly so, but it's unfair to other journalists. Like I said, it's very great that Salim Safi posed this question because it's very critical to have this discussion. It's about serving the larger national interest. So for instance, right now in the context of what's happening, Arshad Sharif's murder is obviously is a national interest kind of a conversation, which is why we saw the press conference today, which is unprecedented. It doesn't have been over so many murders and like you've listed the number of crimes against journalists have, have happened in the past they haven't seen so similar sort of reaction um so unfortunately it's always about serving political interests and national interests largely um where the situation i think with hamid me for instance previously it did come to a point where it was part of the similar national conversation because where it aligned with what what it aligned with and what interest it was serving so i think this is also the problem journalism generally has been reduced to political interests and nat national interest in pakistan what side of the coin are you on? Um, what, like I said, red lines are blurred now. So it's it's like, what interests are you serving? And that that is what identifies your importance. And if you get talked about, also in terms of views, how many views do you get online? Because of course, journalism has also largely moved online. So these are conversations that are very, very important to have. And I think going forward, what's happened with social media is also positive in one way that everyone gets to have a voice um, and, and that these conversations become part of the national um, narrative, even though and, and previously they were not that easy to do so. So you've written extensively about um, social media platforms and how they're pushed to curve free expression, right? It's been a global conversation, not one limited to Pakistan. India most recently with Meta and The Wire, this controversy with turning out the wire having to retract all of its stories because the information was not true or false, allegedly by Meta, now being investigated and we'll see where it goes. Um, we've seen this happen in other countries as well, but Pakistan and India sort of are at the top of the list when these reports do come out, right? In terms of Twitter, takedown requests, YouTube, et cetera. Blasphemy is a big thing in, in, in the YouTube world in Pakistan that Google continuously has to deal with. And you work at the Global Network Initiative as well. So you kind of have a global perspective um, on these conversations in terms of where things are going. We've had the Donald Trump debate in America, for example, as well. How do you compare from your vantage point reporting in terms of what happens in curbing digital expression in Pakistan and sort of the global state of play? Like how different or similar 
are these challenges or in terms of the state sort of influencing things or is Pakistan truly an outlier like India in a way as well or are we sort of on par with some of the challenges that are being faced around the world? Our issue is that we're inspired by the wrong people. So we have Turkey on one end, which has just recently uh, introduced a legislation to penalize fake news and disinformation and also crack down on tech companies. This is very recent. India has a telecom bill coming up. And uh, at one point, we had a comparison of Indian law and Pakistani law, and it was literally word to word the same, just replacing India and Pakistan and our authority. So we're literally copy pasting and taking inspiration from the wrong places. And when Pakistan had this moment of online harm rules, which came about uh, years ago, and there was a backlash on, on uh, a lot of provisions and the problematic um, the problematic law and uh, rules. It was, we actually said that this is an opportunity for Pakistan to set an example and set aside from, from our counterparts or neighbor, neighboring countries or authoritarian countries and set the right example. But unfortunately, it was a missed opportunity because our intention is, like I said, to control and crack down on free speech, on critical speech. On, we have no space for pluralism or dissent or opposing views. And if the intention is the same as other authoritarian countries, the result is copy pasting laws and regulations and taking inspirations from here and there. Also with our um, surveillance angle, I think is very, very important. So what happened with YouTube in Pakistan recently, uh, YouTube was disrupted. Um, I think it was off uh, it during was in Imran excess, Khan's speech. And yeah. During Imran Khan's speech, and there was no official confirmation or denial from the telecom authority in Pakistan or the government. And these kind of arbitrary censorship mechanisms and, and the way we do these things is, is, is obviously not the proud moment. And, and the only difference I feel from other countries is that there is still somewhat a process. Of course, it's not as transparent, but there's still somewhat a process. In Pakistan, we are still confused who the right stakeholders are when we talk about tech regulation. There are many cooks. Everyone has their own vested interests. And there is a lot of, again, lack of transparency. Who do we, um, who, the line of where this law came from, who has what intention is very, very unclear. And that's a big problem when we talk about tech regulation in Pakistan. So for instance, going back to the YouTube example, that YouTube was inaccessible in Pakistan recently. You ask the relevant stakeholders and no one knows the answer. No one wants to take ownership. Everyone is passing the buck. And that's an issue, of course, uh, very non-transparent and arbitrary and uh, yeah. And there's no oversight over this as well, Definitely. right? It's a huge, huge challenge. I mean, with the YouTube thing, I, I remember some conversations online about startups losing business because they were using the Google Cloud and that was what was being targeted in terms of throttling YouTube. So it was a very unsophisticated brute force type of throttling, uh, which also affected Pakistan's technology sector, um, at least some parts of it. Um, and again, um, you know, we've had this conversation over the last few months about audio leaks and things coming yes. out and it's like phones are being tapped. Well, under what authority, right? Like it's one of those questions that the, the as you said, the, the sort of people running the show are the same. Some of the faces may have changed since April, uh, but essentially that used to be the argument a few months ago by the PTI. Now it's on the other side. 
Um, and then the question still remains the same. Who's recording this? Under what authority and law? And who has oversight over it? Clearly, none, no one wants to answer these questions. And uh, what we continue to see is a, a growing state capacity um, without oversight, without regulation on doing things like this, um, which again, my fear at a more macro level is that Pakistan's median age is 24. And it's not like we, when we grow up in Pakistan, are taught history the right way. We're taught Pakistan studies with green tinted glasses. And yes, every country sort of creates its own narrative, but ours is a very uh you know is a much more deeper problem in terms of what we teach yes <laughs> right um and then you grow up and you're online and you're seeing that state narrative being peddled and my question is like at what point in time will this 24 year median age population will it be in this 30s when it's realized that you know you what you knew was not true right and and what point and what will happen then right i know at least from my own uh, experience a lot of friends and older family members that learned the truth much later on in their life and it, it sort of still bothers them right and it has an impact at a societal level um, and and I just don't know where this experiment will go in terms of curbing expression and peddling these lies and fake stories and this fake narrative but what are some, you know, again, coming back to the policy conversation of this in terms of being setting a good example, etc. Like, again, from your global perspective, what are some countries that perhaps are better models in this that we should replicate, not like a Turkey or India telecom bill, but what are the sort of forward leaning countries that are dealing with this problem of fake news and hate speech, etc, while protecting the, the space for free expression as well? It's hard to say what's the best because when it comes to direct regulation uh, approaches, even like, for instance, in Germany, they have a direct regulation approach. It's not the best example to follow because direct regulation sort of always has a consequence attached to censorship. Um, so the best approach would be a multi-stakeholder approach. So, um, for instance, here in the EU, they're leading the tech regulation conversation globally right now. They have multiple regulations coming in, like the Digital Services Act and AI Act and, I don't know, so many acts. Um, but the, the thing, the, what sets it apart is the multi-stakeholder and the due process because it doesn't happen overnight, it doesn't happen in two months, it's a process that takes time and input from multiple, multiple stakeholder groups. So for instance, in EU, they have a disinformation expert group that advises the EU on, on matters related to disinformation and approaches to disinformation. And that group comprises of academia, of um, researchers, of disinformation experts. It's very multi-stakeholder. And that's what we do at GNI as well. What sets it apart is, is it's that it has ICT companies, it has civil society, it has academic groups. And that really does set uh, the conversation distinct. And it, at the end of the day, it serves all interests. And you and direct regulation is, is definitely not the best approach, but it's also kind of not realistic to expect this from Pakistan because, like I said, forget multi-stakeholder in terms of governance as well. We don't have a clear um, line of authority. Um, it's a lot of different people. BTI tried to streamline it a bit, but then within the IT ministry or within BTA, within there was a lot of folks involved and a lot of them had different vested interests. So I think the starting point should be streamlined this process. Like in India also, it's streamlined. 
Um, not that they're the best example to follow again, but fair warning, but at least the process is streamlined. And what that makes, why this makes a difference is when we communicate with tech companies, tech companies are also always confused. When I was a reporter in Pakistan, they were like, this person said this, this person said this in Pakistan, this very confused messaging, also in terms of requests they receive. Anyone in Pakistan can apparently send an official request. And that's not how things work. So we really need to streamline this process and set, okay, if the IT ministry is in charge of doing this, then they are the official authority on matters related to tech and governance. If the PTA is, so yeah, it's a lot of mixed messaging and which is why we are always crying that tech companies don't take us seriously. India is doing so much better in the tech space, but I think a lot of faults lie within ourselves as well, because A, it's not a matter of priority in Pakistan. Frankly, tech is still not a matter of priority, um, largely. Within the government space, PTI did talk a lot about tech, but then they also, it became very politicized very fast. Um, so yeah, a lot of missed opportunities and lack of focus in the tech space. And it's sad because we have a lot of potential, the startup industry and, and it, yeah, even the digital space content creator community in Pakistan is, is amazing. Um, but it's it's a missed opportunity that we yeah, and it, the the potential was uh, held back by the YouTube ban, and finally the creators yeah. are having some space. But then the YouTube throttling happens, and they have questions about what the level of investment should be in Pakistan, given given these developments. And again, from a tech company perspective, right? Like here, whenever a minister or a senior government official comes to Washington and meets business and tech community they're like why don't you open offices there and like it's a very awkward laugh after that question because everybody knows that you don't have to be a lawyer to read the Pakistan Electronic Crimes Act 2016 and know that no major company's general counsel will allow you to open offices in Pakistan because it basically as law gives the FIA authority to take away your computers, your data servers, all of your equipment without a warrant. The warrant can be taken after the fact, right? That's what the law... Also, I would, sorry, I'm interrupting. We're so obsessed with localization and opening offices, but it goes beyond also, of course, what you mentioned is correct, but there's also ease of doing business in Pakistan is so expensive. Our internet banking and, and transaction costs and everything, even for a Pakistani living here, setting up a startup is, is a very tiring, exhausting process and often doesn't result in good consequence, in good results. So I think it's also the, the financial side of things, which is not very inducive to tech companies moving here and surviving here. But of course, there's also the angle of surveillance and push from the government. The authoritarian habits of ours are also not very friendly. For yeah, I, I fully, fully agree. And I remember, I think it was Mubarak Siddiqui once uh, tweeted about this, that, you know, the SECP doesn't accept a business application for registration uh, without an address. And it's like, a startup must have an address and then, then there's a law that says your business name must reflect the work that you do and i'm like well what does google mean <laughs> it doesn't reflect search capabilities or what does facebook mean right i mean facebook is a bit closer twitter like you know you probably wouldn't have been able to register in a uh, you know in a in the united states if they had similar laws um but uh, you know even in terms of that ease of doing business part that you mentioned right the and the confusion that's there, like 
I remember dealing with a app that was banned a couple of years ago in Pakistan. Um, and, and the notice that was issued to this app um, was that, you know, you're promoting un-Islamic values, blah, blah, blah. It was about Islam and security and sanctity of the faith um, and the faithful. Um, but the evidence they gave was basically stuff from Texas and New Jersey. It wasn't even Pakistan content, right? Um, and it was so arbitrary. And, and this company was like, can you just help us interface uh, with the PTA? And I was like, sure, like, let's have a couple of conversations. And literally the conversations was that the PTA was the judge, jury and executioner said, this is the problem. We've determined it's a problem under our law. We've interpreted this as a problem under our law. And we've decided that you're banned because what you're doing is un-Islamic. And I was just like, how do you, how do you have a conversation after that point? Right. I mean, as a, a Pakistani American, I was furious and I had to hold back because I was just there as a listener to advise the company on how to negotiate or talk. But even they were left aghast. They were like, Ab kya because the guy has basically said, here's the crime. Here's the evidence. And I have decided that you're a criminal. Therefore, you're banned. Now go f off basically right and so it, it's just it's just arbitrary you're right and then just imagine this apps general counsel its leadership etc has this experience and obviously they're all part of the same networks in terms of the tech community at least in the u.s and this this information will get relayed the way i'm relaying it to you and our audience time and time again every time some company says i want to go into pakistan right and that's the problem yeah yeah and also, I can relate to this. So when the on, there was a time when we were very pissed at Twitter as Pakistanis that they're suspending accounts of Kashmiris and also a lot of Pakistanis. And then I came across a list that was sent to Twitter officially, official through official channels that these are the accounts that have been suspended, and there were a lot of fake accounts on that list. It doesn't take much to check if it's a fake account or a real account. So that's kind of embarrassing. That on the public side of things, you're releasing very aggressive statements that Twitter is biased. And, and, it, it, and I'm not saying that they don't have biased policies, but at least when you're doing policy around these issues, you can just cross-check and be diligent and responsible that at least your messaging is correct. But uh, that's what I'm saying. We really need to streamline this process. And something that a lot of young people, offer, like we all say, that boomers are controlling the tech industry in Pakistan and they don't understand a lot of the new technologies and how they work. And then the young people who get to advise on these issues, when they do become part of the conversation, they're always sidelined. Um, so that's another frustration. Um, I myself, as a young tech reporter in this field, like when I was engaging with these tech babas in Pakistan, it was very frustrating because A, as a woman, you're always mansplained by these people like you we know better. And then second, it's basically, and it's so frustrating to even advise them, even if you want to. So yeah, a lot of frustrations. Um, but in terms of press releases, we are very, very fast and impulsive. No, notice type. Notice type. Also issuing clarifications to text stories. They're very fast to do that. But when it comes to follow-ups and as a journalist myself, it was very frustrating to get follow-ups and answers on these issues because a lot of times I would always get this is not of urgent importance. This is not a national issue. This is there are more things happening right now. So politics 
takes precedence over everything in Pakistan. So imagine where tech is. So that's also another frustration. This has been wonderful. Thanks for sharing your insights. And, and my last question to you is a more of a meta question. Uh, maybe I'll frame it myself first and then would love your comments on this. Um, we started this conversation with this broader, the dark shadow, right, of Arshad Sharif's murder um, and, and what's that led to. It's a major, you know, talking of inflection points with Asif Ghafoor's network map. To me, this is another inflection point in the sense, in two ways. One, it's sort of, at least for the near term, brought people together. Like I personally was never a fan of Arshad Sharif and the type of content he was putting out. But, and I, I have said this many times, I'm a free speech extremist, like don't care. So long as you're not uh, pushing harm onto other people and threatening their lives in the real world, um, you should be allowed to say whatever you want. That's just my view. And I have the benefit of living in the United States of America where half a mile down from me, I can literally walk and burn the U.S. flag and nobody can do anything about it, right? Um, in Pakistan, obviously, it's not like that. Um, but it's what it's done is it's brought a lot of people together in terms of finally accepting that journalists do face a lot of threats and a lot of dangers in a country like Pakistan. It's a very dangerous place to be a journalist. Um, and you, as you said, you don't know what the red lines are anymore. So you're always walking on eggshells. And maybe Arshad's murder leads to some kind of, you know, recognition that this is a problem and we all need to unite and do something about it. I've seen at least in my friend circle who are Insafians um, finally wake up to that, right? And I'm like, yeah, you guys were silent or actually calling into question when Absar Alam was short or Asatur was, you know, went missing or Matiullah Jan or whatever. But at least now you understand and maybe we can move forward from there, right? We can agree on certain things moving forward. Um, I'm not confident that it'll last, but one can always hope for that. Um, so one would love your thoughts on this moment in time. The second one that I fear on the less hopeful side is that this entire conversation, this idea that the conspiracy has been peddled and the awam is being misguided will lead to more legal regulatory actions that will curb expression more and more like this. If anybody thinks, and this is my cynical take, if anybody thinks that PICA type regulations or legislation will be rolled back as a result of this inflection point is mistaken because it'll go for more and more crazy, you know, and we're seeing this like the DGISI giving a press conference is like a huge, <laughs> huge indicator of where things are going, um, at least to me. What do you think is going to happen in, in the backdrop of this crime? And we don't know who the perpetrators of this crime are, and hopefully we will find out uh, what happened to that poor man. But where do you see this going? Does the unity last? Does the optimism win in your mind? Does the cynicism win? Like, where do we go? I'm a very cynical and pessimist person, so it's hard to give an optimistic answer as much as I want to be. Um, I think in, in the larger scheme of things, more regulations, more controlled environment, because like I said, things have spiraled out of control and they're kind of des desperate is the word I, was, I would use to describe the current situation in Pakistan, desperation from all fronts. Um, so they're very desperate and that always leads to more control. Um, in terms of unity, that's a complex one because right now, as of now, it's an awakening moment within the media fraternity and all funds are realizing that press freedom is a pressing issue and demanding investigations. But like I said, the people running the show, unless they change their intentions, um, uh, I think a question was asked today at the press conference about the traitor label and uh, anti-state label and can we dissolve this once and for all and do away with this and uh, 
there was no concrete reply to that. And that goes to show where the intentions still are. So while this is a big pressing national conversation right now, unfortunately, as with all things I think in Pakistan, is going to die down in a few days and then things will be. But on the other side, I think the level of polarization in Pakistan right now, political polarization especially, it's also very hard to completely erase all that has happened. Um, because people have become very aware, um, very, very vocal as well. And, and and that's something very unprecedented. Like I was saying before, people are very, very overtly critical of state institutions now. And that has been going on for months. They haven't been able to reduce that. So I think it's not going to be as easy as it was before. It will still be challenging. And it will be very difficult to erase people's memory now. Like people remember and are watching and yeah. Well, you know, in a weird way, um, you know, being a Musharraf generation, I think the Musharraf generation has kind of woken up. Like, you know, the folks that used to say Musharraf ka zamana bada acha tha, um, <laughs> now they're at least waking up to realize that, oh crap, like what we thought <laughs> was great was not so great and look at this. And maybe this is Imran Khan's positive contribution to Pakistani society, <laughs> right? That he's made us... Many of my friends at least wake up finally after April. So after giving us lectures about hybrid regime, same page, national priorities and all of that, um, that generation also, there was a huge overlap with the Musharraf Kazamana Chata, and now they're kind of waking up to the fact that... And now everyone remembers the constitution, like this, we need to remain within the constitution. I feel like controversial has become constitution now because suddenly we all care about the constitution a lot and for years that's what we've been rallying, but today it matters more. So yeah, I think a lot of trans unless there's accountability and transparency saying that we will not we will stay within the constitution doesn't really mean anything. Like I was about to say that, that, you know, you read my mind that without accountability, what's going to happen is what's happened in the past, that the opposition will talk about the constitution, but use the same laws and the same tactics when yeah. it's back in power, which is what the PDM now is doing after criticizing yes. the Khan government for three and a half years. And now Khan all of a sudden cares about free expression, where well, we all kind of know that he's an authoritarian himself and you know, yeah. he'd, he'd love to use those laws if he could. Um, he's just conveniently saying, <laughs> somebody told it to me. But um, Ramsha, thank you so much for taking out the time today and, and for sharing your insights with us. Um, you've done fantastic journalism. So please keep at it despite the dangers in a place like Pakistan. Keep reporting, keep speaking truth to power. And before I let you go, um, I always ask my guest, as you know, uh, what are two or three books you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, I thought about this a lot. There are a lot of books that have influenced me, but I think on top of my head and given the current circumstances in this conversation, there's one book called Power, well, People Versus Tech by Jamie Bartlett. It's about how either tech wins or democracy wins. So it's more like whether tech will control democracy or we can save it. Um, it's a very good book. Um, the other results, something similar. It's called The Death of the Gods by Carl Miller. Um, and that's also something about the new controls and that's technology, the new power gods, which is tech, which is controlling us. And yeah, th those are very good books to understand how online, how the online world consumes us and the new control mechanisms. Thank you for those. Ad 
not read either of them so i will go on amazon um and and get those so appreciate the recommendations and again thank you so much for taking out the time today uh wish thank you, you all for the best us. stay safe stay speaking truth to power um and and we'll have you back on the podcast soon uh, you know especially if and when they try to push new regulations out to get your perspective on what they're trying to do so again take care and for the office would love to thank you so much yeah. take care